Welcome to Howden's new podcast, Fortune Favours the Brave. We all take risks in our everyday life and business is no different. In this podcast, we're speaking to the experts about a topical challenge or issue and what business leaders can do to overcome it. Welcome to Fortune Favours the Brave podcast. I am Greg Harrison from Howden and I'm responsible for the management and placement of a number of our medium to larger size surveying practices. And I am very pleased to welcome Alexandra Anderson from RPC, who is going to be joining me to unearth some of the very important subject matters around limiting liability. So firstly, thank you very much for joining us, Alex. Thank you for inviting me. Could I please ask you to introduce yourself? And um, without embarrassing you, I'll fill in the blanks if you're too modest. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, so my name's Alex Anderson. I'm a partner at the City Law Firm RPC. I've been there since 1998, and I have spent a fairly large proportion of my time there defending claims against surveyors. So I have seen firsthand the importance of trying to limit your liability in order to reduce your risk when claims do arise. Thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, it's I've had the pleasure of sharing the platform with you at various initiatives, seminars, conferences. And I think you'd agree that's probably one of the main subject matters that gets cropped up in, in the Q&A. Absolutely. So, Alex, in the usual form of these podcasts, we normally ask our guests if they can tell us about a risk that they've taken and whether or not it paid off. Yes. So, well, I suppose the the, the most significant risky thing I have done recently is uh, OPC recently organised a a team to uh, do the Three Peaks Challenge Mm -hmm. um, for Unseen, uh, which is a modern slavery charity. And... When we got to Snowden, still with the possibility of getting to the top within the 24 hours, we were like, yes, come on, let's go. The person who was leading us was looking a little bit nervous. And we found out why when we got to the top, because it was gusting at 75 miles an hour. And there was thick fog. And at the point we were looking to come down, he started looking at his compass and going, I'm not quite sure where we're going. Fortunately, (laughs) that was only for about one minute that we're thinking we're going to die here. And we did get safely down. Um, and it was definitely worth it to be able to finish the challenge off. But uh, he did say when he got to the bottom, had he known what the conditions were like at the top, he probably wouldn't have taken us up. My God. So it sounds like, was he being very stoic? Did he oh, manage? absolutely, yeah. Good. Yeah. A show of a true leader. <laughs> absolutely. It's an incredible challenge to Three Peaks. So it's supposed to be one of the toughest outdoor activities in Britain, I'm aware. Is that right? Yeah, it is. It's, it is pretty tough. And it depends what the conditions are like. If you've got yeah. nice sunny days and you do it in the middle of, of summer, it's a lot easier than doing it as we did in October. But um, it was still worth doing. What a good sense of achievement. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so on to more, well, perhaps a different type of risk subject matter then. As I said, so as well as advising on and defending claims on behalf of the surveying community, a lot of what you do and actually how the community will know of Alexandra Anderson is providing talks on various risk management and education initiatives. And as I say, a lot of those, a lot of those events, we do talk about limiting liability, but a lot of the questions we get around liability caps is what is a liability cap mm-hmm. and how, or rather, why is it important for members to try and have one agreed? And when I say a member, I'm talking about Rick's member. So can you start us, start us off with that? Yeah, well, it is important for any professional mm. um, and any person who's providing services where the client could bring a claim against them to have a, or at least consider having a liability cap in their contract just to give a fair balance between basically the risk they're taking on in doing that work and the reward they get in terms of fees. And 
basically all it is, it's, it's a way of saying in the event that I've done something wrong, my liability to you will be limited to X. So it's a way, as I say, of, of balancing that kind of risk and reward and protecting your practice from the risk of having a claim that you simply cannot afford to pay. And one thing I would say right from the top is uh, it's important to know the difference between a liability cap and your professional indemnity insurance, the limit of liability. Um, and a liability cap should always be lower or at worst equal to your professional indemnity limit of liability. Never ever agree to take on a liability that's greater than your PI cover because you will be uninsured and it could be disastrous for your business. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because you know, there, a, a lot of people say that actually the surveying profession has been one of the slowest professions to adopt and embrace the use of liability caps. Is that a fair statement, do you think? I, I think it is. Um, I think we lawyers have been pretty rubbish as well. Uh, <laughs> the accountants have always been well ahead of us. Yeah. And maybe it's because they're more focused on the numbers. And I think there was a reluctance on the part of the big lending banks to agree any kind of limits of liability. But I think as a result of what happened in 2008-9, I think there's a greater understanding that there has to be a better balance between risk and reward. And we are now seeing more of the larger institutions being prepared to have conversations around liability caps. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when I think about whether or not the Spain profession has been slower to embrace it, the first thing that springs to mind is whether or not they have been allowed to, been able to adopt liability caps in the work that they do. And you mentioned lenders. So where firms are going out and they're doing work, you know, B2B work, and they, the, the, the lender using your example doesn't allow them to do that, I guess it comes down to a commercial decision for the firm to take as to whether or not they take on the work or not. Absolutely. Um, and that, that has to be the case with any work that you take on. Is the risk that you're accepting in taking on this work in terms of a potential exposure to a claim worth what you're going to get back from it, whether that's the fee or protecting your position on liability. And obviously the focus has always been very much on B2B because the perception was that you can't limit your liability so easily with consumers, and that's certainly the case. Right. We'll come on to it, no doubt, in a minute, the yeah. kind of the legal side. Um, so I think the, the emphasis was very much on protecting yourselves when you deal with other businesses, but it's also worth considering with consumers what you can do to protect yourself. So let's stay on that point because it is an interesting one. Because if I look at a lot of the firms that we at Howden look after, there's a real mixed bag between those that are quite heavy on the valuation, that um, will undertake work for business to business, but there's a hell of a lot that will do private home surveys, home buy reports, et cetera, for consumers. So with that in mind, how does the relationship between a cap agreed with a commercial client compare to a cap agreed with a consumer? Well, in both instances, the, the fundamental premise is that the restriction must be reasonable. So with commercial clients and, well, actually generally with all clients, you've got the Unfair Contract Terms Act 1977, which sets a test for reasonableness where you're dealing on your standard terms. And it gives various factors to be taken into account as to whether that's reasonable or not. For example, the, the bargaining position of the power of, of the different parties, who is better able to insure against any loss that might occur. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also, it used to be the unfair terms and consumer contract regulations, which trips off the tongue. That's now been replaced um, by the Consumer Rights Act in 2015. And Section 62 deals with where you have a limit which puts what, what could be considered an unfair position between the two parties. And if the court says that is an unfair position, then they will not uphold 
the particular clause. And it's important to remember it's, it's for the person who wants to rely on a limitation to prove that it's reasonable rather than the other way around. Yeah, and that's a really difficult position to try and... I mean, for any liability cap that any firm or individual tries to implement, you never, I guess you really never know whether or not it is going to stand the test, whether or not it is going to be reasonable until such time that it is tested. So with that in mind, how should firms be looking at their liability caps in terms of how should they be applying it to make sure that it is reasonable and it will be enforceable as and when tested? One of the key factors that a court will look at is whether it appears that there has been a careful consideration by the company fixing a liability cap that it is reasonable in all the circumstances of the particular instruction. So I would strongly recommend trying to adopt a one-size-fits-all approach. Obviously, you need to have in your terms and conditions, your standard terms and conditions, a line that says our liability to you will not exceed. But what I would recommend is you don't just have a standard figure. And I would very much recommend against simply saying it's a multiple of your fees mm -hmm. because there you can't really prove to a court that you've sat down and thought about what losses might occur out of this specific instruction and what would be a reasonable limit. So it would be far better to, to have your standard clause in your terms and conditions, but it then says your liability will be limited to the sum stated in your engagement letter. And then in your engagement letter, you set out the figure that you want to have as your, as your limit of liability. And the way to look at that is, what, what are you doing? Are, are, are you valuing a property that's worth £100,000 or a million pounds? Clearly, if it's a million pounds, then a liability cap should be much higher because it's, there's a clear possibility that there's going to be a loss that is much more significant if you have not done, done the right job. You also need to consider this issue I, I mentioned earlier about who, who is better able to insure against a particular loss because, for example, if you're doing a survey, someone buys a property relying on the survey, you've missed a defect, the chances are their buildings insurers will say, well, that was pre-existing, so we're not going to cover you. Whereas the professional person will have professional indemnity insurance that should cover them for that loss. So that's a factor that always works against the professional. But what you could say is, well, you have to pay the first £500 of this claim, mm -hmm. which could knock out a lot of the really small value claims, the kind of attritional stuff. And then we'll cover the next 500,000 or something um, on a very significant property or a much lower sum for a, a smaller, a, a less valuable property. So it so acts as an excess, doesn't it? Effectively, yes. Yeah. Um, and you can say, well, that's, that's clearly fair because that's not a huge amount for them to pay. And we'll pay anything that's significantly over that, or at least it should be covered by our insurance. Uh, and that way you can demonstrate that you've been thinking, what is a fair and reasonable figure to put in? And I would emphasize again, it's in all the circumstances of the specific instruction. So think about what am I doing here? What's the likely loss? Where do I reasonably fix my potential liability in the event that something goes wrong? And doing it in each time. And, and the most important factor actually is talking to the client about it. Because one of the things that never works is to hide a limit in the small print. It's one of the factors that's taken into account by the court. Could the client have understood what this liability cap might mean? And you do that before you even do the work. Make sure you've had that conversation so there can be no suggestion that they didn't realise how this cap would work um, yep. and that this cap actually existed. And then you can record it in the, your engagement letter 
they should sign it and return it before you do the work. I know that doesn't always happen, but at least if you've got it in writing before you do the work and you can say, we referred to our conversation at which we discussed, this is the liability cap, then it's infinitely more likely that a court is going to say, well, I can see you have thought about the number, you've explained it to the client, and therefore it's fair and reasonable that you can rely on it. Yeah. Okay. And you mentioned about the importance for their for for any individual or firm looking to cap their liability to to rationalise how they're arriving at it. And that goes hand in hand with what valuers are told day in and day out now in terms of when you're arriving at your valuation, make sure that as and when the valuation is challenged, that you're able to justify how you arrived at that figure at that point in time. So it's that kind of practice really that replicates itself over to incorporating a liability cap. Absolutely. And yeah. as well as communicating, making sure you've got that communication going with the client, presumably the um, the importance for firms or individuals to record how they're doing that and to record the communication they've had with a client is of paramount importance. Absolutely. Um, if you want to go in front of a judge and say, I, I carefully thought about risk and reward here, and I spoke to my client about it, if you've got a contemporaneous note that says, this is how I thought about the number, and this is where I had the conversation with the client to make sure they understood it, again, a judge is going to be far more likely to say, yes, you have met the requirements under whether it's under the regulations or the act yeah. um, to demonstrate it was reasonable. It was considered, yeah. Um, so you mentioned engagement letter. Now, obviously, the whole purpose of having a terms of business agreement is to make sure that the client understands the terms on which you're looking to carry out the work. Is that alone not good enough to incorporate such things as a liability cap? It, it's certainly the first place. Yeah. I would always say make sure you've got any key terms in your letter of engagement up front so the client knows exactly the basis upon which you're going to be doing the work. And I would also recommend that you include in there two other clauses that are very important for protecting your position. One is a personal liability clause right. to make it clear that you as an individual should not be, or they, they can't bring a claim against you as an individual rather than the company for which you work if there is a problem with the, with the valuation of the survey. Um, and there's also a proportionate liability clause, which is effectively a clause that says I'm only responsible for the part of the loss that which is actually my fault. In the last recession, we had quite a lot of people who were facing claims at the same time as, as solicitors, where solicitors had given false information about borrowers owning properties when they didn't. And then the valuer would value and they might overvalue. Mm -hmm. And the bank would come against them for the whole amount of their loss, even though the solicitor had partly been responsible for causing that loss. In fact, you could say they were principally responsible because they gave false information about ownership of the property. But if you've got a proportionate liability clause in your contract, then you're only responsible for your share of the loss. So I would recommend any members have a look at the risk and reward um, guidance note, which both Greg and I were involved in, in drafting, um, which is available on the RICS website. And that gives some typical wordings for these clauses and also for a potential liability cap. And, and there's certainly ones that I would recommend that you include in your, your terms and conditions. But to go back to your original point, it's also good practice to make it clear in the report where you can. I know some standard forms won't allow you to, but just remind the client about a liability cap so that there's no question that they kind of forgotten about it. And when they got the report, they just thought, well, there's, there's no issue here. Um, the, the more you say it, the better, really. Okay. And you mentioned about 
um, proportionate liability. So can professionals go beyond that? I mean, when you think about uh, the issues that the PI market has had over the last, oh, well, I mean, I'd like to go back to 2018 when the Lloyd's Performance Review was undertaken, but actually things were exasperated in 2020 quite heavily because of the COVID pandemic. Mm. And of course, there's Grenfell, which brought in a lot of restrictions and complete exclusions in policies for fire safety related claims, etc. In situations where there is no cover, professionals may want to exclude liability altogether in agreeing to do any such work. So can they go beyond capping or limiting liability by it? Yes, there's no reason why you can't exclude liability. Mm. And if you've got no insurance, then this comes back to the point I mentioned earlier about one of the factors the court will consider is who is better able to insure themselves against that particular loss. If insurers are simply not providing cover for fire safety risks, then that is a factor that has to be borne in mind. So yes, there is no reason why you can't exclude, but again, it's you've got to have that conversation with the client up front and make sure they're aware of this exclusion. And I think a lot of clients will understand if you've got no insurance, there's probably not much point in having the right to sue you in relation to that particular loss because you, you probably won't be able to pay it anyhow. But it is something you can exclude liability, but again, it's down to this question of reasonableness and communication. And proper recording of such communication. Absolutely. He re-emphasises. Okay, fine. And well done on the risk liability insurance guidance note prompt because that really is a fantastic document and another great initiative to work with you on, Alex. And I think we are, subject to your willingness, going to be doing another podcast where we'll dissect another section of that, perhaps third-party reliance and assignment. I look forward to catching up with you on that. Perfect. Thank you very much, Alex, for joining us to do this podcast. And if anyone's got any questions or wants to discuss any further information around limiting liability, then please don't hesitate to contact either of us or reach out to Alex or I using LinkedIn. But for now, thank you to everybody that's listened and goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fortune Favours the Brave from Howden. To hear more episodes and subscribe to our channel, search Fortune Favours the Brave on your favourite podcast app.